Well, last week we began the, the study of the real Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's the longest, it's the most detailed, it's the most profound of all of Jesus' uh, recorded prayers. Uh, the prayer really closes this entire section of John's gospel, which consisted primarily of his teaching, his teaching of the, to the disciples, his instruction to them. He's been preparing his disciples for life uh, without him uh, so that they can continue to carry on his mission without Jesus. And the focus of the first portion of Jesus' prayer, um, which we studied last week, was, was not as many presume. Um, it was not a prayer for himself. Many Bibles title it that way. Um, Jesus was, in fact, praying for the completion of God's eternal plan of redemption, which would culminate with Jesus returning to his place of, of glory. He said in verse uh, 5, to the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so it's only right for Jesus to pray that, that after completing his mission on earth, that he be able to return to his former place of, of glory. He left that glory for us. So it's only right that he should return to that place of glory. So there is a sense in which Jesus prays for himself, but there is nothing uh, self-seeking or selfish in his prayer. He only prays for himself in the sense that his glorification is part of God's uh, eternal plan. And last week, we looked at four aspects of the saving purposes of God, uh, all of which are centered on Jesus' work of redemption on the, the cross. We looked at, uh, at the, the fact that Jesus has the right to grant eternal life. He said that he had the authority to give eternal life. He's been given that authority by God the Father, and that he offers a relationship through eternal life. He just doesn't offer... Uh, eternal life, everlasting life, just many years of living, but he offers you a relationship in eternal life. And we also saw that Jesus met the requirement for eternal life. He paid the price for us. He finished the work on the cross. And then we saw that Jesus, because of those things, he deserves reverence, having accomplished eternal life for us. Today, we're going to look at the next section of his prayer, the prayer for his disciples, verses 6 to 19. Uh, this section, obviously, is the majority of the prayer. It's interceding for his disciples that Jesus spends the most uh, time on. The, the majority of his focus is on interceding for them, which I find remarkable. He's the one about to go to the cross. We have five verses of prayer there. Uh, the rest is for everybody else. Um, Jesus prays for the 11 in particular here. In particular, he's praying for the 11, but the prayer really applies to all believers. If you see in verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So it's a prayer for uh, all of us. How does it make you feel that Jesus prays for you? I'm pretty encouraged by that. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to really divide this, this passage into two parts. Uh, first part, Jesus' report um, to the Father. And the second, his request of the Father. So let's look at it here, beginning in verse 6. Verse 6 really is a transition statement. It's, uh, it's going to highlight the interplay between the two sort of sides of salvation that we've been seeing all through John's gospel. You have the divine sovereignty uh, sort of side of things, and then the human responsibility on the other hand. Um, and it introduces here for us the reasons that Jesus is so confident that God the Father will answer his prayer. Do you pray sometimes, not so sure if you will receive an answer, not so confident as to uh, whether the Father even heard you? Well, Jesus prays with absolute and utter confidence that his prayer will be answered. And verse 6 sets all this up. Let's look at it. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, 
You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So first of all, Jesus manifested the Father's name to the disciples, he says. Manifested means he revealed. He revealed the Father's name to the disciples. Um, Now, we have to understand what Jesus means here by revealing God's name. What does it mean in Scripture um, when we speak about God's name? We have to understand that he's speaking of all that God is. It encompasses everything that he is, his character, his attributes. Um, To have God's name revealed to you is to know God. (laughs) That's it. In, In Psalm 910, it says this, Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Because we know the name of the Lord, we know the Lord. Because we know the name of God, we know God. And Jesus manifested God. In fact, Jesus is the supreme manifestation of God because he is God in human flesh, isn't he? And that's why Jesus said all the shocking things he did throughout uh, this gospel of John. He who sees me has seen the one who sent me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's what he has been talking about. And he perfectly revealed or manifested God. And he revealed God, notice it says, to the men whom you have given me out of the world. And that point really sort of reiterates some of what we discussed last week. And you have to go back to verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus has authority granted to him by the Father to give eternal life, and he gives eternal life to all that the Father gives to him. So the disciples, it says, were taken out of the world and given to Jesus, sort of in a spiritual sense. Obviously, they're, they're in the world. They're, they're there, right? They're on their way to Gethsemane. <laughs> they're in Jerusalem. So they're not out of the world in that sense. But spiritually speaking, in terms of what John means by the world, the evil, satanic um, world system, they're taken out of that. And the Father has taken them out of that and given them to Jesus. And so Jesus now has them. And since he has them, he says he has given them eternal life because that authority is granted to him. So Jesus confirmed that statement by saying, they were yours, you gave them to me. And so here's the whole point here. According to Jesus, when are people granted eternal life? Interesting, isn't it? When are people granted eternal life? Here it says, when the Father gives them to the Son, he grants them eternal life. He has authority to do that. But the truth is that even before conversion, the disciples belonged to who? The Father. Does that fry your noodle a bit? (laughs) But that is what we've been seeing here in John. John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Why does Jesus not cast them out? Because those given to him, he grants eternal life. None are given to Jesus that don't get eternal life. Here's an example. Paul is in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. In verse 9, he says this, The Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. So this is the Lord speaking to Paul. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. What is going on here? Paul has been persecuted everywhere he goes. What does God mean in this vision by saying, I have many people in this city, so I want you to go out there and speak? There's a lot of believers there? No, that's why Paul's there. He's there to preach the gospel. 
So what does God mean when he says, I have many people in the city? (laughs) They are ones that he has chosen for the gospel. And so he says, Paul, go out there because there are the elect out there. Go preach, do your work, and I'll do mine. Paul and Barnabas, another example, speaking to the Jews. The Jews have rejected the word of God, but there are some Gentiles in the crowd. And they declare that they're now going to take the gospel to the Gentiles because the Jews have rejected it. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed naturally because God had many in that city right? There were many there that needed to hear that. And we looked at all this last week, really. But the point is this, the plan of redemption began in eternity past. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world, Revelation 17, 8. And all of the redeemed are given to the Son as a love gift. And in addition, Jesus describes those given to the Son as those that have, he says here in verse 6, kept your word. Now, that's interesting because this statement introduces the other essential element of salvation, and that's obedience, <laughs> right? So here you have all the sovereignty part of things, and then, but, but also they've kept your word. Fascinating. Not obedience that results in salvation. That's not it. That would be works, right? It's rather obedience that's the result of genuine saving faith. You could really say this this phrase uh, this way. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have genuine saving faith. Because they have genuine saving faith, they have kept your word. That's another way of saying the same thing. The disciples have responded in genuine faith to the truth that they had received through the manifestation of of God by Jesus. That's the whole point. And what all that does is sets up for us what we're about to see. Jesus is going to build upon those inseparable truths um, as he gives us this prayer. First, we're going to see his report to the Father. He's going to report to the Father here in verses 7 to 8. Now, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So here in the first part of his report, we see that they believed in Jesus as the Son. That's really the uh, sort of sub-point under the, his report, right? They believed in Jesus as the Son. That's, the, that's a mark of a true disciple. You must believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, one who has genuine faith in Jesus. That's a fundamental truth about their, their, their faith, is that they believe that about Jesus. The disciples had come to know that Jesus performed miracles by the power of God. They've known that all things which you have given me are from you. They saw those miracles firsthand. They've come to believe that those things were done by the power of God. They knew that he did according to the will of God. They've been walking with him for three and a half years. Now, today, um, we don't really witness miracles like Jesus performed like that, right? We don't really see people walking around on water. There's a lot of it here. But you don't see people walking around on it today. But we do see miracles. Um, We get to witness one of the greatest miracles around, that's the miracle of regeneration, the miracle of salvation. It is truly a miracle that the Holy Spirit could enter this heart and transform this wicked heart. That is a miracle. No one can do that. That's a miracle we get to witness. It's a miracle that is true 
today. We do witness that. And how does that come? How does that come? Well, that's verse 8 again. I've given to them the words which you have given me, and they've received them, and they've known surely that I come forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. It's through his words. It's through his words, right? God's word must be received. God's word must be believed. That's how we can receive salvation. It comes through receiving this. We believe the Father's word through the Son, and we believe the Father's sacrifice of the Son. They believe that you sent me. That means that we also believe why he sent him to die on the cross for your sin and for mine. But Jesus reports on another truth. It's not just that. He reports on another truth of his disciples. Yes, they believe in Jesus as the Son, but also they were given to him by the Father. So he's reiterating these things. They were given to him by the Father. This is why Jesus can pray so confidently. They believe in me as the the Son, and they were given to me by you, is what he's saying. Look at verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? Really struck me in a new way this week. Jesus doesn't pray for the world. How intolerant. How completely hateful of, of Jesus to not pray for the world. But as you'll see here, Jesus, I'm just playing. Jesus' prayer that will follow is going to be for two things for his disciples. He's going to pray for their preservation and he's going to pray for their sanctification. Jesus cannot be praying those things for the world. You have to understand that. Jesus cannot, cannot be praying that the world be preserved in their rebellion, in their hate of him. Jesus will not pray for that. He cannot pray for their sanctification in their unbelief. Jesus will not pray for that. He doesn't pray for the world. And it's true that God uh, shows love to the world. A lot of times it's referred to as his even common, common grace, right? He uh, makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And there are several scriptures that show us that God desires that sinners be saved. In Ezekiel 18.23, he says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Even in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He offers salvation to all. Like Jesus says in Matthew 11.28, Come to me, All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, not just some. But the point here is this, is that the intercessory work of Christ as high priest is only for those who belong to him, only for those the Father has given to him. Jesus doesn't pray that for the world. He can't. He can't. He doesn't intercede for the ungodly. In fact, you might find this interesting, the only recorded instance in the New Testament, is when Jesus prays from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, right? That's the only prayer. But that really is a model for us as believers to pray for our enemies and those who persecute you, right? The privilege here of those that belong to God is that Jesus is praying for you. That is the point you must let sink in. Jesus prays 
for you. And that's the reason Jesus prays for them here, because they believe in him as a son. They were given to him by the Father. Jesus can pray for you. In verse 10, he says, All are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. That statement is, again, a claim to full equality with the Father, isn't it? It emphasizes the unity the Son has with the Father, what they share. Because of that unity, the disciples belong to God, and they likewise belong to the Son. In addition, the Son is glorified in them. Now, they haven't done a whole lot that's astounding. In fact, in a short few hours, they're going to leave him, and they're going to abandon him. Yet Jesus says he's glorified in them. How is Jesus glorified in them then? By the mere fact that they have faith in Christ. You glorify Jesus today because you have faith in him. You don't have to be a great theologian. You don't have to be a Peter. You don't have to be a Paul. You don't have to be some kind of spiritual giant. Faith in Christ brings him glory. And because they bring him glory, Jesus prays for them. So here we have the prayer. Fascinating. Here in verse 11, here we see Jesus' request of the Father. Just the first part of 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Jesus' prayer here is, is rather weighty. He's, he's praying as if he already left the world, right? I'm no longer in the world, he says. His mission is going to be accomplished in a few short hours, and soon after that, he will be, he'll be gone. He'll physically leave the world. So his prayer for the disciples who would remain in the world is, is twofold. We're going to see that here. And first, we see the first prayer request here in the second half of that verse, because he's no longer in the world, right? They're going to be in the world. And so he prays this. Look at the second half. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Holy Father. You know, we've never seen that title of the Father before in Scripture because it's the only place in Scripture where that title is used. Holy Father. What would be the reason Jesus would use the word holy here in this prayer? I think Jesus uses it to underscore the necessity for holiness in the lives of his church, in the lives of his believers, his followers, in the midst of a hostile world. It's the basis for your separation from the world, right? Be holy as I am holy. I, the Lord God, am holy. We must be holy. Why? Well, we are his, (laughs) and we belong to him. And so we must represent him well. And we're to come before him as a holy church. And what Jesus is going to pray here, which is amazing, is for their spiritual preservation. He says, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. He says, keep. Now, this word keep is tereo, and it means to observe. It's used that way back in verse 6 when he says the disciples have kept your word. It's the same word, tereo. It also means to guard. It means to take care of or watch over. It speaks of protection by means of restraint. Uh, It carries the idea of sort of preserving, watching over. It's often used also in John's gospel to refer to keeping God's words. So that's why it's used that way in verse 6. They've kept your word. And because they kept his word, Jesus prays the Father will keep them. Right? They've kept your word. Keep them. 
Now, Jesus is going to use this word a lot. We're going to see it in verse 11, 12, and, and 15. Jesus says, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me. What does this prayer mean? What is Jesus really praying? Why does Jesus have to pray to the Father to, to keep us, to keep the disciples? Well, he's, he's praying for protection, but for preservation. This is necessary for two reasons, and I want to take a moment on this. It's necessary that Jesus prays for this for two reasons. One, it secured their glorification. It secures their glorification. All Christians are preserved by God for salvation. If you're a true believer, if you're a true uh, branch, right? If you go back to that analogy, in the vine, you're preserved by God for salvation. You will bear fruit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter says this, We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You are kept for salvation by who? By the power of God. You're kept by him and by his power. In Romans 8, probably more familiar, verses 29 to 30, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Nowhere in here do you say, well, he may. These are called, but he he might justify you. Uh, You're justified, yeah, he might glorify you. Depends. Hope it works out for you. No, it's a progression. If he predestines, he calls. If he calls, he justifies. If he justifies, he glorifies. You are preserved for salvation, for glorification, through the power of God. Jesus does not pray this because he needs to in order for you to be preserved. He doesn't pray this because preserving for salvation, um, um, or he does do this because it is the work of the Father. That's why he does this. We should be praying for things that are the work of the Father. That's what we should be praying for. We're told to pray that we are counted worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We're, we're to pray that by who? By the power of God. So we're basically, basically praying that, that God would work in us in such a way so that we will live lives that will make us worthy of the calling we have received by God. So we're praying that God would do what God is going to do. That's what we're praying. Guess what Jesus prays for? Jesus prays for God to do what God is going to do. It's really no different than what he has already prayed for back in verse 5. Look at that again. Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Can I ask you, is there any chance that the Father won't glorify Jesus? None. It's part of the plan. He's simply praying that God fulfill the plan. We should be praying for the things that God declares that he will do. And Jesus prays for that. Preserve them. It secures their glorification. Father, do what you've promised to do. It's only by your power. It raises up our mind to who does this ultimately? Well, God does that. Because you can work a whole lot, really, really hard. A lot of people do in this world, trying to secure that glorification. You got no ability to do that. I'm just going to tell you right now. Stop trying. You can't. However, however, Philippians 2, right? We are to work out what God works in. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, right? He who works in you, it's he who works in you that helps you to work out. So who's doing it there? 
Well, it's God. (laughs) We should be praying that God would do what only God can do. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus just said that he is glorified in them. If they could be lost, then Jesus would lose his glory. They can't be. A commentator helped clear this up a bit. He describes it this way. He says, keeping, keeping means everything. Keeping from falling away, from evil doctrines, from being overcome by sorrow or in tribulation and suffering. Keeping them in life and in death. From this first petition of our Lord's prayer, we learn the absolute security of a true believer. If a true believer, one who belongs to Christ, who has been given by the Father to the Son, for whom the Son of God intercedes, can be lost, it would mean the loss of Christ's glory, the loss of part of the travail of his soul. So guess what? You can't be lost. Secured. The second reason Jesus prays for the spiritual protection is to secure their unity. Secure their unity. Look what he says here. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. That they may be one as we are. The emphasis here is the unity that that, that comes to you as soon as you are regenerated, as soon as you're born again. It's not so much the unity in the church. We're, we're, we're commanded to keep the unity in the church, meaning we, we don't... We don't, we're not divisive, right? We try to bear with one another in love, right? We try to forgive one another. It's that, you know, we're talking about the unity that you get the minute you are born again. The minute you're regenerated, you have an instant unity. You are one with Christ. You're one with him, right? Because you're one with Christ, you're one with the Father. It's the unity that we all have in Christ through the Holy Spirit. We all are part of the family of God. We all have the life of God in us, and therefore, we enjoy the unity that Jesus has with the Father as we are one, Jesus says. So it's not the unity of of believers necessarily in terms of the ability to break that, but the unity that we have instantly in the, the Godhead. Now, let me just ask this, hypothetically speaking, what if Jesus didn't pray these things? If Jesus didn't pray, if he didn't pray for the preservation, if he didn't pray for your glorification or your, your, your unity, would you still be secured for glorification? Would you still be um, enjoying that unity? You would, because it's the work of the Father. The Father's not just waiting around. Well, I hope Jesus gets around to praying for that because, man, i got a whole bunch of guys I'm going to lose here. That's not the idea at all. The Father is faithful to his work. Jesus just prays to the Father to complete the work. Guess what that does? That just glorifies God because it makes him, aware of, makes him aware that we are aware of what he's about to do, what he's going to do. How much of your prayer is focused on those kind of things, those eternal things? Oh, Father, you know, make me worthy. Make me worthy of the calling you've given me. Do that through, through you, through your power in me, through your Holy Spirit. Those are the things that Jesus prays for for his disciples. Look at verse 12 now. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. So just the first part here. So while, while Jesus was on earth, who kept the disciples? Well, well, Jesus did. That's his point there. Jesus prayed for the disciples. He, he spent a lot of time in prayer. All the times that he was off there in prayer, he was praying for the disciples. So Jesus prayed for their spiritual protect, protection while he was on earth, uh, but he also pray, um, protected them physically. He says here, right, uh, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Now, 
we're going to see Jesus use two different words for kept. Okay, we already saw the one word, tereo, which is the first use here. Okay, in verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. That's the same um, word we saw earlier, right? Uh, Preserved, uh, watched over in your name. But the second use, those whom you have given me, I have kept, it's a different word. Interesting, right? It's the word fulasu, and it means to to keep watch or protect from something. It it sort of refers to protection from outside uh, dangers. So while Jesus was with them, he prayed for their spiritual protection, but he also protected them physically. So he's he's saying, I covered all that, right? While I was with them on the earth, I handled all that. And so Jesus is praying, right? I've got that covered. And because he's got that covered, he didn't lose, he didn't lose anybody. Almost nobody. <laughs> Look what he says. Interesting passage. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd who took care of his sheep. He claimed to protect his disciples. But Judas, Judas is who he's talking to, right? Judas was not saved. Judas was, was lost. Oh, no. Jesus failed. Uh, Jesus failed in one place. He failed to keep all of them. He was, he was pretty successful. 11 out of 12 is not bad. What's he talking about here? Can I ask you, was Judas ever a sheep? Was Judas ever a true branch? Was Judas ever a true follower? Was Judas really one of the ones from the Father given to the Son for eternal life? I will tell you no. No. Jesus didn't fail here. He didn't fail to protect. Judas was always, from the beginning, well, he calls him a devil, doesn't he? Earlier on, Jesus knew. None of this took Jesus by surprise. Back in chapter 6, he said, one of you is a devil. He was speaking about Judas. And he uses the word here that he is lost, right? None of them are lost, um, except, he says, except the son of perdition. Lost is apulumi, and it means to destroy. It means to perish. That's what he means by lost. None of them have, have died. None of them have perished. None of them have been destroyed. Oh, except the one who's the son of perdition, which means son of destruction. It's literally a play, a play on words. None of them is destroyed except for the one whom was meant to be destroyed. That's pretty harsh. The son of destruction. None of his disciples will said to have perished except Judas here. Now, here's what's interesting. This phrase, son of perdition, is used only one other time in the Bible. Guess who it's used of? You guys probably know. I heard it. The, anti- the Antichrist. The Antichrist. That should help you understand what Jesus is meaning here, right? Someone who appeared to be good, appears to be a good branch, appears to be in favor of God's people, appears to be a, a lover of God, then, appear, then, then makes himself known to be who? Evil. Actually, a hater of God. Well, that's, that's Judas. Appeared to be good. All right? Now, let me tell you something here. At this point, in the disciples' minds, from their perspective, they still don't really know anything about Judas. In fact, last we saw, Jesus, Jesus said, hey, one of you will betray me, and they were all confused. None of them could believe that one of them was able to betray Jesus, Right? They, they were confused. Now, for all they knew, Judas left because he was going to go do some, you know, good act 
He's going to go do some sort of a donation or something or get some supplies. They have no idea. From, from their perspective, he's just running an errand for Jesus. But for Jesus' perspective, he's lost. He's gone. He says, none of them um, is lost except the son of perdition. From his perspective, he is lost. He's, he's never been saved. I know people look into these verses and try to find support for the fact that you can lose your salvation. Oh, but look at Judas. He lost Judas. He never had Judas. He never had him. He never had Judas's heart. Jesus wants your heart. And also, we're told why this happened. It was that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said. That scripture might be fulfilled. Now, if you remember back to chapter 13, verse 18, you might want to turn there very briefly. We, We did look at this. Because this is when Jesus is going to identify his betrayer. He already spoke about this. Chapter 13, verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Right? He has just told them that they're going to do great things. They're going to be blessed. He's like, but I'm not talking about all of you. I'm not talking about all of you because one of you won't be there. One of you won't do that. It's, it's one that's going to fulfill Scripture. And then he quotes um, Psalm 41, 9. I have it for you. It's even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. David writes that. I think of Ahithophel, a, a trusted counselor, a good friend, someone he broke bread with who betrays him. Jesus says that fulfills Scripture because I'm going to have one that I'm going to love, I'm going to trust, I'm going to break bread with who will betray me. And that's Judas. But what we have to remember is that's part of God's uh, plan here. Luke records Jesus as saying this in Luke twenty two twenty two, And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been be- determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now, what we have to remember here is this, there's, there's that, there, that tension exists between divine sovereignty and human choice, human responsibility. Because Judas is not a robot. Judas is not just being programmed and walking around doing God's bidding right? Against his own will. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, divine sovereignty. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. That's human responsibility, Judas's responsibility. The point here is this. Jesus did not fail to protect Judas. In the end, Judas was lost because he never believed in Jesus to begin with. He was devoid of spiritual life. God used his wicked choice to fulfill his sovereign plan. That's the end. Look at verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Hmm. How will these words fill the disciples with, with joy? I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled. He's reminding them, I'm saying these things while I'm in the world to your face here, so that you will remember after my departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit, who will bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you, right? You will have joy. They will remember that he conquered the world. They will remember that he prayed for their preservation, and thus they will be filled with joy. Um, How do we know that that's what Jesus is talking about? Well, we read about that in chapter 16, verse verse 20. Just look at it again there. But that's when Jesus talks about the coming of the, the Holy Spirit. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. They're going to weep because Christ is going to be crucified. The world's going to rejoice because they think they have victory, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Then he gives the example of a woman in in labor. 
But then in verse 22, therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. In fact, at the end of the passage, he says, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. How is Jesus going to come to them again? Through the Holy Spirit, right? That's what we've been seeing. Through the promise of the Holy Spirit, it is the indwelling um, uh, Holy Spirit makes us aware of the presence of Christ. It's as if Christ is in us. And so they will remember all these things that he said, and so their joy will be full. Look at verse 14 and 15 now. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So Jesus reiterates the reason for the coming hatred of the world here. This is really where he's been, been, been going. They, they have and they, they believe in, in God's word, right? The world does not. <laughs> the world does not love truth. The world rejects God's word because it reveals their values to be sinful, um, worthless. And so the world hates that, right? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone practicing uh, evil hates the light. They don't want their deeds to be exposed. But that's what Jesus is, is talking about here. The, the disciples will love truth. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The world loves its own, right? They're not going to be of the world. The world hated Jesus and will likewise hate his followers. But Jesus doesn't pray. Here's what's amazing about this, for his followers to be taken out of the world. That would be the easy thing, right? Just take them out of the world. Take them out of the persecution. If, if hatred's coming, if hostility and persecution and difficulty are coming, oh, Father, take them out of it. He doesn't pray for that. Instead, he reiterates his prayer for God the Father to keep them from the evil one. Tereo again. Preserve them. God's plan is not to remove us from danger, from opposition, but to preserve us in the midst of conflict. Joseph, Daniel, the saints in Caesar's household. Did you love that when you read that through the Acts? There are saints in Caesar's household? Oh, get them out of there, God. No, I want them there, right? Even Paul, arrested, persecuted, right? Oh, but now I have an opportunity to reach those that are in Caesar's household. We're here to be witnesses to the truth. That's where we're here, in the midst of a hostile, hateful, satanically energized evil world system. That's where we're here. And we're here to represent Christ. Look at verse 16 then. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You are not of the world. I'm not of the world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We, we, we know that. So hard to remember that on any, any given day, isn't it? That you're not of the world because we live in the world. We have to be in God's word to transform our minds from that. We have to be reminded, I'm not of this world. I'm not of this world. You, you've taken me out of the world. He's taken the disciples out of the world. And he's prayed for them, and Jesus prays for you. You wonder why it's hard? Why it's difficult? Because the world hates you. But you know what makes it easier? Is when you're in the Word. That's when you're, when you're in the Word and renewing your mind to those truths. We have to be in there. We have to be in his word. And that really leads us into the sort of the second prayer. So the first sort of all overarching prayer, even though there's sub points there I had, it's, it's really for our preservation, right? But the second is um, God's purposes in sanctification. That's what he's praying here. Look at verse 17. 
Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify is uh, hagiazo. It means to separate, um, to consecrate, to, to purify. That's the church. Believers are to be separate, set apart from the world while remaining in the world. Very interesting, right? While we're preserved for glorification, we're secured in unity, we still have a need to be conformed to the image of the Son. Right? Those, those eternal things are, are guaranteed, but we still have a, a need for that, that sanctification to be happening in our, our lives. And the truth and God's word here are synonymous being used here. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God's word is the truth that sanctifies us. When we accept the message of the gospel of Jesus and believe and understand it, the result of that is a change in thinking that results in a change in living. No change in thinking, no change in living. So we need a change in thinking, don't we? And the only way that takes place is by being in God's word. That's why we're told to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, conformed, pressed into its mold, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12 too, right? That's, that's why it's so important. If you don't transform your mind, you're being conformed. There, there's not a, sort of this nebulous area where nothing happens. Either one is happening or the other. And we must make sure we're being constantly transformed, renewing. Otherwise, you're just conforming. And a lot of times, conforming happens without you even knowing it. It's little steps. It's a slippery slope. It's small little things. And before you know it, you look more and more like the world. You're like, how did I get here? What, what happened here? And to you, it's like, oh, this just, just happened overnight. But if you start to look at it and go, oh, it actually was this. Oh, then this led to that. Oh, and then when I did this, and, I, and we begin to just remove ourselves more and, and more little things. I'm just not going to go to church anymore. I don't need the church. I got, I got God's word. How long do you do that? And pretty soon you're not even in God's word, right? Oh, I won't do that. I don't need that. You know, there's people who know more about that, and I can just do that. I can do it on TV. I'll just watch, you know, I'll listen to the uh, radio. And, but then how long does that last? got no accountability, you got no, you know, faithful people to encourage you, no one to correct you, to say, you know, you're going the wrong way, and pretty soon you're, you're just, you don't, I don't know how I got here, and then you're sitting in my office, and you're going, I don't know what happened. <laughs> hey, we, we all can, can do that. I, I can do that. Jody and I constantly stop and take a, a spiritual sort of account and go, what, what is going on? Where have we gone? What have we stopped doing? <laughs> we need to get back to that. Why did we stop doing it? I don't know. I thought you wanted to. I thought you like we, We're not praying as a family. Why did we stop doing that? I, we got busy. Whatever. You know, we have those things. You have to stop and, and sort of begin to look at your life. Those things will slowly, slowly, slowly take you further and further and further away from the truth. We've got to be in the truth, to be sanctified by the truth. And the Holy Spirit living in us uses the truth of God's word to bring about that change. But if you're not putting the truth of God's word in you, what's the Holy Spirit going to use? John 16, 13, right? Jesus instructed on this. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. Certainly that was to the disciples that after he, uh, Jesus leaves, he will bring to their mind all the things that they need to, to to write the New Testament. Even some will see things to come. John will write Revelation. But the Spirit in you guides you into that truth, guides you into it. 
directs you into it, instructs you in it. Remember, the, the Spirit is your truth teacher, resides in you. That's why Peter instructs the young Christians in Asia Minor in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If you are not desiring the, the milk of the word, you're not going to grow. If indeed you've tasted the Lord is gracious. Ah, there it is. If you've tasted it, you're going to want it. When's the last time you tasted it? That's the question. And only sanctified believers are ready to be sent into the world. If you're not being sanctified, the world's going to chew you up a bit. You're going to have a hard time. I'm not saying you're going to be lost. That's not what I'm saying. But you can be, find yourself in a world of sin, which for many sins, the consequences stay with you forever. Right? Some, some do. Sanctify believers. We need to be sanctified to be ready to be in the world. And look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. He's sending them out to represent him, and he sends us as well. What's the Great Commission? Go therefore and what is it? Make disciples and yeah, baptize and what else? What else? Oh, oh, teaching them. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. That's the part we forget. Teaching them. Yeah. Even each Christian should, should view himself here as a, as a missionary whose task is to share God's truth to others. That's our, that's our mission. That's the disciples' mission on earth. That's yours as well. And this would not even be possible were it not for the fact that Jesus sanctified himself. And you might be going, what are you talking about? Jesus needs sanctification. Look what he says in verse 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. What is Jesus talking about here? What, in what sense does Jesus sanctify himself? He is already set apart uh, to God. He's distinct from the world. But what does he, he mean here? Sanctification here refers to the fact that Jesus is set apart, dedicated for death on the cross. He sanctifies himself for that purpose. That's why he began this whole thing, my, my work is finished. I sanctify myself for that. That's why I'm here. He's here for that work, to accomplish that. He's set apart to do that work, to finish that work, to righteously obey the Father's will by dying on the cross. And the purpose of his death was so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. He does that so that we, we can be sanctified which brings the whole purpose of Jesus' death to really one simple truth to dedicate or, or set apart believers for his mission, to be sanctified by the truth. So you can live sanctified lives here in the midst of a hostile world. Pretty incredible prayer when you think about it. You think about all that we've been learning and in, in throughout this whole, um, really this whole discourse. We're preserved by the Father, we're interceded uh, for by the Son. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Can we take to heart the words of Jesus at the beginning of this, I have overcome the world? <laughs> you better believe it, right? You better believe it. Because you have the triune God on your side and you have all of his resources at your disposal, we just fail to use them. Jesus has overcome the world. You don't have to do that. He's done it. Now you let him do that in you, do his work in you. What do you have to fear? Nothing. Nothing. What an encouraging prayer. Next week, we're going to finish up the prayer, 
as he continues to pray and really expand his prayer beyond uh, just for his disciples, but on to all the future disciples of the world, us included. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. I thank you for the amazing truth that you pray for us. What a special privilege we have. And you pray that we won't be taken out of the world, but that we be preserved from the evil one. Satan has no power over us because you finished your work on the cross and we are one with you. We are victors with you. You overcame the world. We're one with you. We've overcome it as well. And so we're preserved from the evil one. We have nothing to fear. The devil does roam around looking for someone to devour. He will not devour us if we remain in you. Lord, would you continue to do your work in us? Each of us needs the continual sanctification, the continual work of God in our lives to make us more and more like Christ, that we might be able to stand boldly apart, set apart from this world. We need to be the light you've called us to be. We need to be the missionaries you've called us to be in whatever place you have us, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, wherever it is, Lord, that we would shine brightly for you. Thank you for this prayer of Christ, the amazing example it is for the truth that it holds, and I pray that we would be greatly encouraged by what you've shown us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.